The House will return Monday and stay in session through Thursday. The Senate will return Tuesday and stay in session through Thursday. Last week in the House, the House returned on Tuesday and took up and passed a rule governing floor consideration of four different bills. The appropriations bills for the defense, homeland security, state foreign ops, and agriculture. Then the House passed a bill under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday and Thursday, the House processed amendments on those four appropriations bills. On Wednesday, the House considered 40 amendments. I'm sorry, 47 amendments. On Thursday, the House considered 40 amendments. Then on Thursday, it was time to vote on final passage. First, the House passed the State Foreign Operations Appropriations Act. Then the House passed the Defense Appropriations Act. Then the House took up H.R. 5692, the Ukraine Security Assistance and Oversight Supplemental Appropriations Act of 2024. That's a bill to provide $300 million in training assistance to the armed forces of Ukraine. That bill passed by a vote of 311 to 117, with all the no votes coming from Republicans. Then the House took up and passed the Homeland Security Appropriations Act. Then the House tried but failed to pass the Agriculture Appropriations Act. It lost by a vote of 191 to 237, with 27 Republicans voting against it. On Friday, having passed three of the four appropriations bills the Speaker had intended to bring to the floor in a nod to his right flank to show his conservatives that he was committed to the return of regular order, the Speaker directed that a short-term continuing resolution be taken up. H.R. 5525, the Spending Reduction and Border Security Act, would have extended government funding for 31 days, with Defense and Veterans Affairs fully funded, and the remaining non-defense discretionary spending funded at a level 8% below current levels. It also included most of the provisions of the previously passed H.R. 2, the Secure the Border Act, minus its E-Verify provisions. But the measure failed by a vote of 198 to 232 when 21 Republicans joined 211 Democrats to vote against it. On Saturday, the Democrats, trying to stall, offered a motion to adjourn. That motion was defeated by a vote of 0 to 427. Then the House took up H.R. 5860, the Continuing Appropriations Act for FY 2024 and Other Extensions Act, under suspension of the rules, meaning it would require a two-thirds vote in support to pass. This was Speaker McCarthy's last-ditch gambit to keep the government open a continuing resolution that continued government funding at current levels for 45 days until November 17. In addition, it includes $16 billion in emergency disaster relief funding, but it contains no funding for assistance to Ukraine, despite the Biden administration's urgent request for $24 billion in new assistance to Ukraine, most of which is intended to be spent replenishing Ukraine's weaponry and ordnance. The new CR easily surpassed the two-thirds threshold needed, passing by a vote of 335 to 91, with 126 Republicans voting for it and 90 voting against it, and 209 Democrats voting for it and only one voting against it, because it didn't contain funding for Ukraine. And then they were done, and we'll talk more about the spending fight in a moment. This week in the House, the House will return Monday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up five bills under suspension of the rules. 
On Tuesday, the House will consider H.R. 4394. That's the Energy and Water Development and Related Agencies Appropriations Act for FY 2024. On Wednesday, the House will complete its consideration of the Energy and Water Development Appropriations Bill. On Thursday, the House will consider H.R. 4364. That's the Legislative Branch Appropriations Act for FY 2024. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Tuesday and voted by 77 to 19 to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to H.R. 3935, that's the Federal Aviation Administration Reauthorization Bill, which Majority Leader Schumer had decided to use as the vehicle for a continuing resolution to keep the government open beyond midnight Saturday. On Thursday, by a vote of 76 to 22, the Senate agreed to the motion to proceed to H.R. 3935, the shell for the CR. Then the Senate tried but failed to override two presidential vetoes of Congressional Review Act resolutions of disapproval against two Fish and Wildlife Service rules, one protecting the long-eared bat and the other protecting the lesser prairie chicken. On Friday, the Senate voted to confirm Todd Gee to be U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Mississippi. Then the Senate voted to confirm Tara K. McGrath to be U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of California. On Saturday, the Senate agreed to a motion to instruct the Sergeant-at-Arms to request the attendance of absentee senators so they could consider the Senate Majority Leader's draft continuing resolution. Then, just before 9 p.m. Sunday evening, the Senate agreed to pass the 45-day continuing resolution that had passed the House earlier in the day. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return on Tuesday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on a motion to invoke cloture on the nomination of James C. O'Brien to be Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. Then, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I anticipate the Senate will also vote next week on Brendan Abel Herson to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Maryland and Susan Kim DeClerc to be U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of Michigan. Now to Dianne Feinstein. On Thursday night, Dianne Feinstein, the liberal trailblazer, the senior U.S. Senator from California, and the oldest sitting senator, died at her home. She was 90 years old. Feinstein was a champion of the liberal agenda, abortion rights, gun control, the environment. On Sunday evening, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced his decision to appoint LaFonza Butler, the president of Emily's List, to replace Feinstein in the Senate. In doing so, Newsom keeps the promise he made to replace Feinstein with a black woman. How he got away with such a clear and obvious example of racism and sexism is beyond me. Imagine what would have happened if he had promised the exact opposite, that he would not consider a black woman for the appointment. As Chief Justice John Roberts wrote, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Butler is not just black and female and the head of one of the nation's premier liberal political fundraising juggernauts. She spent two decades as a labor leader with the Service Employees International Union. And the cherry on top of the sundae for Newsom? As Politico put it, quote, Butler will be the first openly LGBTQ person to represent California in the Senate, end quote. She's expected to be sworn in on Wednesday.
Now to aid to Ukraine. Continued U.S. assistance to Ukraine became a flashpoint in the spending fight last week. Let's start with the basics. Clear majorities of both the House and the Senate support continued assistance to Ukraine. But recent polls reveal that opposition to aiding Ukraine is growing among the American population, and that is being reflected in the Congress, especially among the more MAGA-minded. Week before last, Georgia Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene declared she would no longer vote for U.S. assistance to Ukraine or for any bill that contained funding to help Ukraine. That complicated passage of, defense, of the Defense Appropriations Bill, which had $300 million for training Ukrainian military forces, tucked inside it. As we discussed last week, Speaker McCarthy said he would accommodate her by pulling that provision from the bill. Then someone pointed out to him there was funding for Ukrainian assistance in another appropriations bill, the state foreign ops bill. He reversed himself and said the Ukraine assistance would stay in the defense bill. But when the defense bill came up at the end of the week, last week, the $300 million for Ukraine training had been stripped after all, and it was instead put on the floor as a standalone. It passed overwhelmingly by a vote of 311 to 117. When Speaker McCarthy introduced his so-called clean continuing resolution on Saturday, it contained an additional $16 billion for emergency disaster relief, but it contained no supplemental funding for Ukraine. One congressman, Democrat Mike Quigley of Illinois, who's the co-chairman of the Congressional Ukraine Caucus, voted against the CR as a protest that there wasn't any supplemental funding for Ukraine contained in it. Over on the Senate side of the Capitol, where the support for Ukraine is much stronger than it is in the House, the leadership of both parties had been planning to include $6 billion for Ukraine in the CR they were drafting. So when the House passed its CR without Ukraine funding and sent it over to the Senate, it took them some time to figure out how to handle it. They could have added a paragraph that said, and $6 billion for Ukraine, and then sent it back to the House but the House had passed its bill and recessed. So doing that would have meant the government would run out of funds at midnight Saturday night. So that wasn't really an option. Nevertheless, at least one senator was so determined to assure continued funding for Ukraine that he held up the Senate's consideration of the House-passed CR. Democrat Mike Bennett of Colorado insisted that the leadership give him assurances that Ukraine funding would be brought to the floor of the Senate soon before he would agree to a unanimous consent request to allow the Senate to consider the House-passed CR. He got the assurances he sought and dropped his hold on the CR. And once he dropped his hold, the bill was taken up and passed by the Senate. So the status of continued U.S. assistance to Ukraine is up in the air right now. The House has passed a supplemental spending measure that contains a small amount of funding, but nowhere near what the Biden administration believes it needs for the next year. The Senate has passed nothing. One interesting piece of intelligence picked up along the way. Republican senators are hearing from back home that a growing number of their constituents oppose continued funding for Ukraine. That isn't swaying the senators' opinions but it is making them sensitive to the optics of the situation. Consequently, they are telling their leaders they would prefer fewer votes for bigger aid packages rather than more votes for smaller aid packages.
I expect the Biden administration will come back to the Congress in the near future, within the next 60 days or so, to ask for a full-year funding bill, something in the tens of billions of dollars. The Senate could, of course, simply take up the bill the House passed Friday, the standalone funding of Ukraine assistance. The Senate could bring that bill up, amend it to add more money, and then send it back to the House. We'll see. Now to the spending fight. Let's review. Speaker McCarthy spent the last several weeks trying to placate the rebel caucus of the House Republican Conference. It's important to say at the top that the rebels were rebelling against McCarthy's leadership because they weren't convinced that he was living up to promises he had made during the negotiations over his speakership. Their demand from the start was that the House return to regular order, that is, passing the government funding bills one at a time, so they could be considered in a timely fashion, rather than rolling them all into one giant omnibus bill, as has been done for the last 20 years or so. Rolling all the spending bills into one gargantuan bill is how the swamp spends so recklessly. And if you're determined to end business as usual in Washington, the first thing you want to do is end the use of omnibus spending bills. This was never an unreasonable demand. In fact, it was perfectly reasonable, and it was one of the demands the rebel group had made back in January in exchange for their votes, or their non-opposition at least, to McCarthy's ascension to the speakership. The problem was, months later, Speaker McCarthy did not enforce the discipline on the spending process necessary to ensure that the appropriations bills came out of the Appropriations Committee in a timely fashion, so they could be considered by the full House one at a time. Instead, despite the fact that the House had only passed one of the 12 appropriations bills by the end of July, he allowed a scheduled six-week August recess to take place as planned. When the House returned from its August recess, it had just 11 legislative days on the calendar before the end of the month and the funding deadline. It had passed one of the 12 bills, leaving 11. In order to keep his promise and move the bills in regular order, the Speaker should have scheduled all 11 bills for floor action. But he didn't, because he knew that he would have had a hard time passing them with just Republican votes, because the demands to cut spending were so great that there were Republicans he couldn't count on. So he dithered and let two weeks slip off the calendar. He tried to move the Defense Appropriations Bill, a bill that's so big that the one bill contains about half of the government's annual discretionary spending, but he couldn't get agreement on two separate occasions two weeks ago. So he switched up and began putting other appropriations bills on the floor last week. The plan was to move four of them as a show of good faith to the rebel caucus, in the hopes he could earn enough of their confidence that they would agree to vote for a solid, conservative, continuing resolution, just to keep the government open long enough that the House could then pass all the other appropriations bills. This conservative CR would maintain spending levels on defense and veterans affairs, but cut spending on non-defense discretionary spending. It would include border security provisions and even a debt and deficit commission to make recommendations on how to get our reckless spending problem under control. The conservative CR, of course, was not meant to become law. It would not pass the Democrat-controlled Senate, and even if it did, it would not get the president's signature. It was meant for one reason and one reason only, to show the Senate and the President that there was a majority in the House to pass a short-term CR with conditions. 
And that meant that the Senate and President would have to bargain with the House. In the absence of passing a simple CR through the House, McCarthy would have no negotiating leverage and would be at the mercy of Biden and Schumer in the shutdown negotiations. That was the plan, anyway. The House took up and passed three of the four appropriations bills, but balked on passing the Agriculture Appropes Bill. McCarthy put the conservative CR on the floor Friday, but 21 conservatives voted against it, and it went down. McCarthy was stuck. Meanwhile, the Senate wasn't just waiting around. Majority Leader Schumer had already taken action to be ready for a failure in the House. On Tuesday, he had begun the process of moving a continuing resolution of his own. That CR would contain spending at current levels for 45 days and then add $6 billion in emergency disaster relief and $6 billion for supplemental aid to Ukraine, both at the request of the White House. On Tuesday, the Senate had agreed to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed. On Thursday, the Senate agreed to the motion to proceed to the bill. Because the Senate draft CR contained funding for Ukraine, Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul objected to a unanimous consent request. So Schumer had to use up time. But by Saturday, the Senate was ready to move. The problem was the bill had that money for Ukraine in it and that would have jammed McCarthy in the House. So Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who had been working with Schumer all week long to advance a short-term funding bill to keep the government open, stiffed Schumer and told Schumer McConnell would not provide the 10 Republican votes Schumer needed to break a filibuster. Democrats in the House preferred the Senate version because it contained the disaster relief and Ukraine funding the White House wanted. Both sides knew that whichever chamber passed its bill first would likely prevail, simply because of the time crunch. So House Democrats stalled. They offered a motion to adjourn the House just to take up time. That vote was held open for almost an hour as Democrats used that time to read the language of the bill McCarthy had just dropped on them. Then House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries used a power reserved for the two House party leaders. It's called the Magic Minute and it allows the leader of each party to speak for as long as he or she wants, regardless of what the time clock says. It was in that context that New York Democrat Jamal Bowman did something extraordinary. He pulled a fire alarm in the Cannon House office building and forced the evacuation of the building by responding emergency services personnel. Bowman's staff tried to explain this away, saying he didn't realize the fire alarm would go off if he pulled the fire alarm. Bowman himself said, quote, I was rushing to make a vote. I was trying to get through a door. I thought the alarm would open the door. I didn't mean to cause confusion. I didn't know it was going to trip the whole building, end quote. I don't think he's likely to get away with that excuse. Speaker McCarthy said, this should not go without punishment. This is embarrassing. You're elected to be a member of Congress. You pull a fire alarm in the minutes and hours before the government shut down, trying to dictate the government would shut down. McCarthy then compared Bowman's action to those of the January 6 rioters, remarking on how other people were treated when they attempted to delay the legislative process. House Administration Committee Republicans said Saturday they had already opened an investigation. Capitol Police also said they were investigating. Uh, Other Republicans called for various punishments for Bowman, ranging from censure to expulsion. 
By 2 p.m. or so, things had settled down, and the House took up and passed the short-term CR. It then moved to the Senate, where it was stuck for a while, while Senate leaders talked with Colorado Democrat Senator Mike Bennett about Ukraine aid. Eventually, Bennett dropped his hold on the unanimous consent request, and the bill passed by a vote of 88 to 9. Granted almost seven weeks to move legislation, Speaker McCarthy's plan is to continue moving appropriations bills through the House, one at a time. Two more appropriations bills have been scheduled for floor action this week, and the plan is to move two more the following week. Stay tuned. Now to the hot topic, Gates v. McCarthy. On Saturday night, after the House had recessed after passing the continuing resolution, Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates, who had led the opposition to Speaker McCarthy's attempts to muscle a spending bill through the House Republican Conference, posted to X, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, that Speaker McCarthy, by moving the continuing resolution under suspension of the rules, had violated a rule of the House Republican Conference. Specifically, he cited Rule 29, entitled Guidelines on Suspension of the Rules, which says, quote, The Republican leader shall not schedule or request to have scheduled any bill or resolution for consideration under suspension of the rules which, one, fails to include a cost estimate or for which the cost estimate exceeds $100 million unless fully offset by at least an equal reduction in current spending, end quote. On Sunday morning, appearing on CNN, Gates followed through with the threat he had been making against McCarthy for weeks, quote, I do intend to file a motion to vacate against Speaker McCarthy, he said. I think we need to rip off the Band-Aid. I think we need to move on with new leadership that can be trustworthy, end quote. Appearing on CBS News' Face the Nation, McCarthy responded to Gates, quote, That's nothing new. He's tried to do that since the moment I ran for office. I'll survive. You know, this is personal with Matt, end quote. So, let's assume Gates follows through and files a motion to vacate. He would then go to the floor and request a vote on the resolution, which would be a privileged resolution, meaning it gets a vote within two legislative days. This is not a new leadership election. This asks a simple question, shall the speakership be vacated? Now, the House rules offer ways around the motion to vacate. One is called the question of consideration. That is, the House may decide it does not want to consider the measure. Chapter 41 of the House rules begins this way, quote, Clause 3 of Rule 16 provides that when any motion or proposition is entertained, a member may demand the question, will the House now consider it? This rule, which was adopted in its present form in 1880, permits the House, by simple majority vote, to refuse to consider business it may not want to consider on that day. The rule provides that the question is not to be put unless demanded." End quote. There are other motions that could block a motion to vacate, a motion to refer it to committee, for instance, or a motion to table. If either of those were introduced and got a majority, the motion to vacate would be sidelined. If, on the other hand, the blocking motions were to fail, then the motion to vacate would be considered and voted on. And if it were to pass with a simple plurality vote, then the speakership would be vacated. 
The House cannot operate without a speaker, so all the business of the House would come to a screeching halt, and a new leadership election to fill the position would be held. This is where the politics gets sticky. It may be the case that McCarthy cannot get a majority of the votes cast to be speaker, but I'm not aware of any other Republican who could come close. That's because about 200 of the 221 members of the House Republican Conference have said they will vote for no one but McCarthy for speaker. How would the Democrats vote? Would they all vote for their own leader, Hakeem Jeffries? Or would they seek concessions from McCarthy in exchange for their votes? Would McCarthy seek Democrat votes and be willing to offer concessions in order to get them just so he could be elected speaker again? On the other hand, it's quite possible that a motion to vacate could come to the floor and then be defeated. That is, Gates doesn't get a majority to answer the question, no, Speaker McCarthy does not deserve to keep his job. In that case, McCarthy remains as Speaker, Gates is embarrassed, and life goes on. That's precisely what happened in 1910, the last time the motion to vacate was actually used. That was when Republican Speaker Joe Cannon was challenged from within his own conference. In that case, Cannon beat his opponents to the punch by goading a Democrat to introduce a motion to vacate just so he could prove his strength within his conference by having it voted down. For now, we just don't know. Stay tuned. Now to the Biden crime family saga. On Tuesday, Fox News Digital reported that Hunter Biden received a wire transfer for $250,000 from a Chinese businessman, and the wire transfer listed the Delaware home of Joe Biden as the beneficiary address for the funds. According to both Hunter's memoirs and the plea agreement he signed with the Department of Justice, he was living at the time in California. So it's quite interesting that the wire listed his father's address as the beneficiary address. The wire transfer came from Jonathan Lee, the CEO of BHR Partners, one of the businesses with which Hunter Biden was associated. Joe Biden cannot claim to have no knowledge of Jonathan Lee. Biden wrote letters of recommendation to help two of Lee's children get into college in the United States. And according to congressional testimony, Joe Biden had coffee with Lee and spoke on the phone with him, too. Fox News Digital also reported last week that it learned that the House Oversight and Accountability Committee has learned that bank records reveal that from 2014 to 2019, the Bidens and their business associates received $24 million in foreign payments, of which the Bidens kept $15 million. The $24 million is $4 million more than previously known. Quote, bank records don't lie, but President Joe Biden does. End quote, said committee chairman James Comer of Kentucky. Now to the Biden impeachment inquiry. Last Thursday, House lawmakers launched the first hearing of their official impeachment inquiry against President Joe Biden. Prior to the opening of the hearing, the Ways and Means Committee released 700 pages of testimony that committee chairman Jason Smith claimed showed Joe Biden wasn't just aware of his son's business dealings, but was connected to them. In addition, the Ways and Means Committee released documents that committee leaders said show the Department of Justice blocked the IRS investigation into the Bidens and their business activities. Now, finally, The Jenny Beth Show. Episode 32 of The Jenny Beth Show dropped last Wednesday, and it's a treat. Jenny Beth interviews Charlie Kirk, 
founder and president of Turning Point USA. Jenny Beth draws Charlie out on how TPUSA is shifting from its origins as a student movement to a new attention paid to adults and churches. And, of course, there's a robust discussion of what lies ahead in 2024. Highly recommended. And that's our Washington Report for this week.